Hi, my name is Julie Williamson, and my family have been members at Crosspoint like ever since it's been planted, so I've been coming here my whole life. Um, today's scripture reading is from Numbers chapters 21, verses 4 through 9 in the CSB translation. Let's hear God's word. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Julia. Oh, what a crazy story. If this is your first time hearing this story, and my hope is that you would lean in, because as strange of a story as it may sound, the story's climactic conclusion takes place many years later, and it has monumental implications for us all here today. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan Kennel, and I've had the privilege of preaching here a few times before. It's always an immense honor and I need to be totally transparent with you that uh, there was a possibility that I wouldn't be here today. Uh, many of you know exactly one month ago my mom went to be with Jesus. It was very hard, and it continues to be very hard. Uh, we celebrate the hope of the gospel. In fact, the last time I was here was the last sermon that my mom heard me preach she was sitting right over here, and incredibly, the sermon was on the end of 1 Corinthians 15, about the assurance of the bodily resurrection, how the clock for death is ticking, and how on that day, we'll be able to taunt death as it will be swallowed up forever. Oh, death, where is your sting? We long for that day, but of course, that day has not yet arrived. So it's challenging for those of us who remain. And so I considered asking the elders to find a replacement. I know they would have totally understood, but the Holy Spirit ultimately guided me to say yes. As I mentioned, today marks exactly one month. This day was decided months ago. I don't believe in coincidence. The Lord knew. And of course, I'm sure that there are others here who are suffering, who are going through challenging times. It's not just me. Maybe it's heavy and sudden, or maybe you've been carrying it for a long time. Or maybe it happened in the past, but the wounds are still there. Or you found yourself across from someone suffering deeply. Eventually, of varying degrees, we all go through seasons of suffering. And it's not a comparison game. Pain is painful. And honestly, through preparation, this sermon has been a help to my heart. And so I'm thankful for this opportunity because it has served me well. And, and I'm excited for you to receive this. And I trust and pray that it will serve you also. May you allow God's story 
through his word to speak into your story. So the title today, Salvation for the Suffering, Look and Live. So the passage comes from Numbers 21. Before we dive into the passage, I want to give you some context. I don't assume that everyone is fully aware of everything happening in the book of Numbers. So after 41 years of Egyptian slavery, the people of Israel were miraculously set free by the power of God. He rescued them. He blessed them. God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Despite their frequent disobedience, God made a way for them to be near him in his holy presence in the tabernacle. The book of Numbers begins with the conclusion of their one-year stay at Mount Sinai. And things are going great. They take a census where all of the people are numbered, title of the book, and giving guidance on how to set up the camp and laws for how to live as a people near God's presence at the tabernacle, the cloud of God's presence lifts and guides Israel away from Sinai and out into the wilderness towards the land of Canaan that God had promised to, God's, to Abraham's offspring. And the rest of the book of Numbers is marked by, God, by the people's frequent disobedience and rebellion against God. It only goes down from there. Immediately, they start complaining. We want to go back to Egypt. God, God, take us back to Egypt. At least we had plenty of food there. Come on. They rebel against Moses, the leader. God brings them right up to the land, and, say, and they say, no, we can't do it. And God finally says, fine, this generation won't enter the land. You'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, in chapter 21, we're nearly at the end of the 40 years. Most of the generation had died, and a new generation had come. And just before this passage, God had spared them from the king of Arad. But they're forced to go the long route to Canaan, and then comes more complaining. So, Here's what we're going to do. Julia just read the passage, Numbers 21, 4 to 9. I hope you're there in your Bible. I want to closely walk us through this story. This was an actual historical event that took place in human history around 1400 BC. These people were struggling big time. So what does God want to say to our hearts today through this passage? And then throughout the narrative, We'll come up for air to, to see the bigger picture of God's story and ask the question, how does Jesus interject himself into this story and into our story? So that's what we're going to do. Let's do it. I have three points. The first point, I got to say, is the toughest one. But if you're taking notes, write this down. Our suffering does not give us permission to sin. Our suffering does not give us permission to sin. And this convicted me. Usually when we're going through a hard time, we're so engulfed by the situation that we're less aware of our sin. And that's what happened to the Israelites. So in verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Now remember, these people are struggling. I know some of you here enjoy camping, uh, imagine camping for 40 years. No thanks. 
plus being totally reliant on God to provide you food and water. Honestly, some of our human tendency is to say, look, I get it. I mean, I probably would complain too. 40 years without a home? But remember, God has taken care of them every step of the way. He has protected them. He has met their needs. He has entered into a covenant with them, fully aware that there was no way that they would hold up their end of the deal. And so after years and years of complaining, how could they be complaining again? It's like the guy who really has a great life, and yet every time you talk to him, he finds a way to complain about something. Don't you just love people like that? Do you think maybe sometimes God thinks the same about us? Complaining again and again, despite the thousands of blessings he has showered over us, Sin only amplifies our suffering. It, it doesn't help. God doesn't give hall passes for sin. I mean, can you imagine Jesus? Yeah, you know, there were times I was, you know, a little rude or short-tempered or impatient, but, you know, it was a stressful time. Absolutely not. The stress may be a contributing factor to the sin, but it's not a valid excuse. It's not. See, the way we handle suffering and difficulty matters to God. All right, so let's come up for air. Let's check this out. So Romans chapter 8, this is an awesome passage. Romans 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit of God will reveal to us that, yes, we are children of God. How will it do that? Verse 17 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch that? One of the ways in which the Spirit of God affirms to us that, yes, we are children of God, is the way we suffer with Christ. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? Jesus suffered on a cross. And while that happened to some Christians, obviously, most of, the, uh, most of us, that won't be the case. I believe the essence is that we are called to suffer like him. Jesus was, portray- was betrayed, he forgave. Jesus was wrongly arrested, he healed his enemy. Jesus was humble, kind, and gracious, even through tears, all the way to the end. Do you remember a few weeks ago when the air quality here was like dangerously bad? So we have missionary friends in India, and in their city, the air pollution is like that or worse almost all the time. And when you think about the potential long-term effects of that for them and for their children, they're forced to wrestle with what does it mean to suffer with Christ? And on top of that, away from family, earlier this year, they had a miscarriage. Deep waters. They heard an American pastor say that in the West, we are the least equipped people for suffering in the history of the world. Because of our wealth, we live a fairly easy life in comparison to the rest of the world. So much of our attention is all about avoiding suffering at all costs. Safety is primary. 
And the truth is that when we walk through suffering like Jesus did, it honors him. And it intensifies our bond with him. It's amazing that though he is God, Jesus, by becoming human, can relate to our suffering. He knows. He gets it. And it invites us to join him in the suffering and invokes our heart to call out for a better world. The good news of that passage in Romans 8 is the next verse, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The mountaintop glory of Jesus in heaven is no comparison to the valleys we experience here on earth. It's almost hard to imagine. But allow your imagination to go there. If you said your despair right now was at negative 100, the glories of Jesus in heaven will be at plus 100 billion. No comparison. The Israelites did not suffer well, but in God's grace and power, may we not follow in their footsteps. Point number one, our suffering does not give us permission to sin. And point number two, a little easier, asking why questions is okay with the right heart. Asking why questions is okay with the right heart. Looking at verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So again, to be clear, the Israelites are an example for us of what not to do. They said there is no food, and then they say that they hate the food. Ah, so there is food. You just don't like it. Manna was miraculously falling from the sky, and the people of Israel had the audacity to essentially spit in the face of God. They say there's no water. Literally, in the chapter before this, God made water come out of a rock. This is unprovoked, voluntary bitterness, utterly rebellious. They ask a question, but they're not looking for an answer. It's accusatory. When a person's heart is intent on rebellion and fixed by discontent, even the best gifts from God can lose their savor. Nothing will satisfy until the heart is made right. And so the question is, are our why questions genuine or accusatory? Why is the question of an aching heart? There's nothing wrong with asking why. But what is the status of your heart? Is it accusatory, displaying a lack of trust? As in, God, how dare you? God can't handle that. We see some of that in Lamentations and in the Psalms, but it's not a healthy place to be. The creation asking accusatory questions to its creator. Or is it simply from a heart of anguish and mourning? God, why? Jesus asked why questions. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment of human anguish where Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 
He's not asking an intellectual question where he expects the Father to re-explain the plan of salvation. Jesus, in his divinity as the perfect Son of God, knew exactly what was going to take place and why. It was the only way to pardon sinners. Yet we get a peek into the window of his humanity and the very real anguish that he suffered there on that cross. Naturally for us, questions arise. And for, for me, God, why, why? why? Why did my mom die when she did? And it's okay to ask that. And I was thinking, sometimes people try to bring comfort by saying, at least you know that you'll see her again. And that's true. It's so true. It's not true for everyone. But my mom had faith in Jesus alone for salvation. I have faith alone in Jesus for salvation. And so it's true. I'll see her in heaven. But for whatever reason, I didn't find much comfort in that truth. And I realized why. Throughout the Bible, it describes heaven as being all about Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Just overwhelmed by the glory of Christ. And he will fully satisfy every single need or desire that I could possibly imagine. Oh, what a day that will be. I'll see my mom and what a sweet reunion that will be but I won't need a mom anymore. Here is where I need a mom. In this life, God graciously gifts us with parents, siblings, spouses, children, and friends to enjoy and to help us navigate this broken world. And when their address has changed from earth to glory, the greater the affections, the greater the heartbreak. God, why, why did my mom die when she did? It's a fair question. But I've realized it's also only fair that we ask other why questions. Why didn't she die sooner? Why did I get to have a great mom when so many others don't? To ensure that our why comes from the, great, from the right heart, we have to choose an attitude of gratitude. You have to make that choice. While grieving, pair that by remembering God's many undeserved, undeserved gifts. It's when we forget all of God's blessings that we go down a dangerous path. So point one, our suffering does not give us permission to sin. Point two, asking why questions is okay with the right heart. Now, before I get to point three, I need to quickly address verses six and seven. They, they can't be ignored, but I decided that they weren't deserving of a full point. So here we go. Verse six, when the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they, and they bit the people, so many people of Israel died. Their prolonged ingratitude and blasphemy was justly dealt with by this punishment. God's paternal care has been a source of freedom and protection, and yet they have continually forgotten and that instead have habitually chosen to complain. They were now exposed to how great their folly to rebel against God was, and it displayed how weak they truly were. 
Now, if, if this was the only passage of Scripture that we had, we didn't have the rest of the Bible, we might incl be inclined to believe that suffering is always a result of God's judgment. And that's just simply not true. But this is something to not take lightly. Unfortunately, today we can't do a full systematic theology on suffering. You know, when is it judgment and when is it a byproduct of simply living in a broken world? But I want to give a few passages. There's plenty of examples in the Old Testament about judgment. There's a couple in the New Testament as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there are people who are sick and had even died because they had taken communion without first examining their hearts. It says that they brought judgment upon themselves. Yikes. In Acts, Ananias and Sapphira lie about the amount of money they donated to the church. God brings judgment and ends their life. Yikes. All that to say, I believe that usually our suffering is not judgment or because of something we did. It's a result of a broken world. Francis Chan has a sermon where he showed that every book of the New Testament mentions how we as Christians should expect suffering in this life, following in Christ's footsteps. We shouldn't be surprised by it. In John chapter 9, a man was born blind, and the disciples are trying to figure this out. Who was to blame? And Jesus said, nobody. It was, it was just so that the works of God could be displayed in his life. The Apostle Paul, an incredible, successful missionary and church planner, basically persecuted and imprisoned nearly his whole life, doing exactly what God had called him to do. All of Jesus' disciples, doing just as Jesus had commanded, go and make disciples of all nations, suffered greatly and died horrible deaths. Suffice to say, I believe it specifically says that the Lord sent the snakes to make it clear that in this situation, yes, this was well-deserved judgment. Then verse 7, And the people came to Moses. Finally, they have a good response. They say, We have sinned. And Moses is like, Yeah, no, duh, I know. <laughs> we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses, even though these people were rebellious towards him and complained against him, Moses prayed for the people. At last, the people confessed their guilt and their desperate need for a pardon from God. And before we get to the end of the story, let me just say this. God's mercy is never out of reach. It's never too late. If ever there was a moment where God would say, no, it's too late, this would be it. No matter how old or young you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you did this week, no matter how gross or unworthy you feel, God's mercy is available to you. Turn to him. And in fact, you are unworthy. We're all, we all are. That's the whole point. And yet God is always there ready for us to reach out to him. He answers their prayer, but in a surprising way. He answers their prayer, but in a surprising way. Point number three, be healed 
look and live. Verse 8 to the end. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and lived. First of all, notice sometimes God answers our prayers in unexpected ways. He didn't do what they wanted. They asked for him to remove the serpents. But instead, he gave them something better for the long run. He gave them an opportunity for them to show their faith in him. He gave them an opportunity to turn to him and to trust in him rather than just removing the situation altogether. Second of all, let's face it, the serpent is a strange symbol for God to choose. It was the cursed animal in Genesis 3, and it was the instrument through which God's judgment was carried out on the people. And now God is telling Moses to make a symbol of this cursed animal to be used for healing. It speaks to the challenge that God has by being faithful to his covenant. God is right to bring down justice on sin and evil, but even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. This story was for the people of Israel so that they would believe in God. And that was displayed by looking at the bronze serpent, to look and live. Should we do the same? For sure not. (laughs) For sure not. 2 Corinthians 18 verse 4 speaks of a future day when King Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Generations down the line heard this story and they turned this bronze serpent into an idol. They missed it. The power to bring about positive results is not in the physical bronze serpent. It was a single-use symbol that would point to something greater. I mentioned at the beginning that the story does not end here in Numbers 21. It points to something greater. And it points to John chapter 3 in the New Testament. In reference to the bronze serpent, Jesus says, that's me. You know John 3.16? We sang about it, for God so loved the world. Do you know what came right before that? Right before that, in John 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus, talking about how to be born again, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, may have eternal life. Do you see? Look to the serpent, you get life, you're healed. Look to the Son of Man, you get eternal life, and you're healed forever. Why? Why would Jesus allow himself to die, lifted up on a cross like that for you and for me? Because of his love. For God so loved the world, so loved Ryan, so loved you, Put your name there. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever looks 
to him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't believe the lie that our circumstances, our suffering, our pain is an indication that God's love is not near. He was lifted up on a cross for you and for me. Jesus is saying to you, you don't have to do anything. It's a gospel by faith. Just look. Looking is the evidence of faith. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin. To, to be sin, to be cursed in that moment on the cross, Christ who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our curse, we receive his righteousness. What a deal. Jesus is the greater bronze serpent, lifted up, became sin, became a curse for us. Look to Jesus. He can heal you of your sins. He can heal you of regret. He can heal you of bitterness. He can heal you of unforgiveness. He can heal you of pride. He can heal you of shame. Jesus alone is the source for life and healing today, tomorrow, and forever. I close with this. The day was January 6th, 1850 in Essex, England, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, was 15 years old. At this point, he had read lots of theology, but was not converted. He was desperate to be saved, but could not make it happen. In his own words, taken from his autobiography, you got to hear this. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obligated to stick to the text simply for the reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter to me. There was I, and I thought a glimpse of hope maybe for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, Look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. 
He may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year be able to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. It's Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's work, and you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to that about that length and managed to spin out for 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And he looked at me under the gallery. And dare I say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I hadn't been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in this life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, in this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, you man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. I had passed from darkness into marvelous light, from death to life. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair. By looking to him, I received all the faith which inspired me with confidence in his grace. And the word that first drew my soul, look unto me, still rings its clarion note in my ears. There I once found conversion, and there I shall ever find refreshing and renewal. Look unto me. Psalm 21 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Look to Christ. Next time you find yourself 
looking to yourself or looking in a mirror, pause and take a longer look at Christ. When your head hits the pillow and your heart aches, look to Christ. When you feel lonely, heartbroken, uncertain, or weary, look to Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him, whoever looks to Him, may have eternal life. Look to Christ for salvation. And every day, every day, until He returns or your days here have been completed, look to Christ. Look and live. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we come before you and praise you for what a wonderful, mighty, merciful, loving God you are. And thank you for your word that we can read and learn and see of what it is that you call of us. Not much. To look and to live. God, I pray even right now that your spirit would minister to our hearts. And as we go out from this place, that in the dark and hard and weary moments, you would call us, remind us to look to Christ, to look and live. God, we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll close with John 3, 14 to 17, one more time. And as the Lord lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So as Ryan said, look and live for eternity and for each day this week. I pray that you'd be filled with the Spirit as blessed as you go. Thanks for being here today.